to uh, uh, back to Romans chapter 14. You know uh, from what we've been talking about and how we've been coming through the Bible uh, that we've been in the book of Romans. And a couple of weeks ago, last week, we kind of took a Sunday off for uh, Easter and went uh, and dealt with that. And, uh, but I told you basically that uh, we're entering into the last two chapters of the book of Romans. And for you and for me, uh, trying to build a New Testament church and all of the things that we endeavor to do for the Lord, I guess there's no greater chapter anywhere or two chapters anywhere uh, that really help us. And I gave you an outline last time about, uh, as I've done periodically, as we've kind of recapped where we're at, so I won't do that again today. But you know that every chapter in Romans is a different aspect of what you and I are to believe as a New Testament child of God. And uh, when we get into chapter 14 and 15, the last two chapters, it's dealing with our relationship with each other as God's children, as Christians. And uh, we use that as even today will be uh, an introduction. There's so much material here, and there's so many things that before we jump into Romans chapter 14 and 15 that we'd first need to fundamentally understand that we want to take the time and talk about it. But remember last time we talked about the six basic fundamental things that we need to have in our lives through the process of spiritual growth. When you got saved, God wants you to grow. He wants you to come to the point, in fact, we've talked about it many, many times in the Bible, that there's seven stages of spiritual growth found in the Bible. A new Christian is likened to a baby, and the Bible says that they, they, they desire the sincere milk of the Word. But as they grow, they go through a process where the Bible says that they're able, just like your children when they grow up, they start out eating the, drinking the milk and the soft food, but then in time they grow up to being able to handle uh, the same things that adults eat, meat. And, of course, we know that milk in the Bible is always a picture of the basic fundamental things of the Word of God. But meat in the Bible will always be a picture of the doctrines in the Bible. And so we talked about these six basic fundamentals that we need to have in our lives uh, for a good growth process. And these are things that any church that is following the growth process with their people, uh, the pastor and the leadership should look at within and make sure these things are in the church and that you're getting them. Remember the first one I talked about how important it was uh, that you see God for who he really is in, in our lives. Most people have a totally different concept of God than the concept that God wants us to see and understand. Most of us fear God. And as children, uh, it's never healthy for a child to fear his parents. He had to respect his parents and fear them in the aspect of a reverence, but to walk around in a paranoia of a terror of living in your home is a terrible thing, and it's terrible in churches too. The second thing we talked about is you need to see yourself as God sees you. The moment you got saved, everything changed about you. In fact, one of the studies that we bring you through here in this church to help you grasp that is, is probably one of the greatest things we ever did, and that focuses on the seven things that changed about you the day you got saved. You ask somebody, you know, well, what happened when you got saved? Well, I got saved. Well, I got washed in the blood. I got born again. Those are all the terminologies that we use to describe an event in the Bible that actually changed your life, and you need to know at one point in time as a sinner, where you were at and how God looked at you, and then the very next instant when you trust Christ as your own personal Savior, what's different about you? It's really the key to your success, and it's really the key to your spiritual growth. And then the third thing in the first section was to see other Christians as God sees them. We're going to have to get along with each other 
you know what, uh, there's people that, uh, uh, that we don't get along with now or people that we have issues with or maybe they have issues with you, but the truth of the matter is we're going to spend a, a eternity together in heaven and, uh, and it's too bad that we've got to get a glorified body before we can work out issues when all you've got to do is follow the principles in the Word of God right now to get them fixed. But that's just the way that it is. So those three things were in the first section. And those things are absolutely important to your spiritual growth. And then we talked about the second set. And I told you on these that these are the three basic needs that you and I need to have to be fulfilled in our life as a Christian. When, we, when I look at you or you look at me, uh, we basically have three fundamental needs that need to be met. When I preach the Bible or teach the Bible, no matter when it is, when you come over one-on-one with me or Thursday night or in the institute or in Sunday morning or whatever we do, I always am looking at these three things uh, in your life and my own life. And, of course, we talked about uh, whether it's male or female, we all have these three basic needs. The first needs were physical needs. You have legitimate physical needs today that need to be met. And that's why the Bible says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, that my God shall supply all of your need. Because you have physical needs that need to be met. We also have spiritual needs. And that's why the Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, that once you get saved, there's some things that you need to add to your faith. Things that you need to put into your life that help you grow and ensure the process that you get where God wants you to go. You have spiritual needs. And then the last thing that we talked about is the fact that we all have emotional needs. Bible says in the book of Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28, one of my favorite verses, and it's so true in dealing with people. It says that he that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. We know in the Old Testament that the walls were the defenses around a city. And as long as that wall was up and it wasn't breached and it was strong, uh, the enemy could not get in to spoil the city. Well, look at it like this. Your, your, life, your, your life is a picture of that city. And the wall around you is your emotions. And if that, if that wall crumbles, if your emotions are not held in check, if you do not gird yourself up with Bible truth to build that wall strong, then the Bible says that he hath no rule over his own spirit. That's your emotions, like a city broken down without walls. And boy, every problem we have, every issue we have as Christians is going to fall into one of those six areas there, and they're really the key to do that. And then you remember, I told you how that we fix those things. I told you that in the last 25, 30 years of my life, I have come through the Bible myself. I've learned from my own mistakes, learned from my own areas of my life, and learned from other people in their lives as I've worked with them, and they've helped me, and I've helped them. And, and I found through the New Testament an absolute foolproof concept of building you spiritually the way God wants you to do. And I gave you those things. The uh, first one was a sound mind. You've got to start with absolute truth. We know that to be the Bible, don't we? From the sound mind, you develop sound doctrine. That simply means that what you do believe is based on the Bible and not some man or not some emotion or not some feeling but your, your, what you believe is built on sound doctrine. Doctrine, sound doctrine will be the building blocks in your life. You remember the day you got saved? 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about you laid a foundation in your life. On that foundation, you build a wall. And that wall was built with the individual blocks that make up the individual Bible doctrines that are built on the foundation of the Word of God. Then we talked about the next thing was sound words. Once I get you into the book... 
Once I get you to the point where I start teaching you sound doctrine, then you begin to look at things differently as these six things that we talked about earlier begin to take over in your life and you begin to use sound words. What does that mean? It means that you begin to talk with a confidence. You begin to know what you're talking about. You know what you believe. I find it incredible today that most, God, most of God's people would get up in any given Bible study or any given place where they had an opportunity and they would lay out what they believe. But if you threw them a Bible and asked them to prove what they believe from the Word of God, they would not be able to do that. We're a bunch of people today as God's people that, that uh, believe a lot of things about the Bible, but we really don't know the Bible. I'm not interested in you just knowing some things about the Bible. With where we got to try to go and what we got to try to do before the Lord comes back, it is absolutely essential that you know why you believe <coughs> what you believe. Sound words. And then that leads to sound speech. <coughs> sound speech is your ability to proclaim the Word of God. Not only does God want you to know what you believe, but when you put it out to somebody else, He wants you to proclaim it uh, with the soundness of sound speech. And of course, sound mind, sound doctrine, sound words, sound speech, it produces the final thing, and that is a sound faith. And when you get to this point in your life, you're unmovable. There's a place in all of our lives that most of God's people never get. And I don't know, it's very hard today to get to that point because God's people are so unstructured, they're so undisciplined, they've got so many other issues in their life. They never put those six things in their life, and many times it's not their fault. Many times it's because nobody ever helped them develop that. You would be surprised of how many Christians, uh, when they got saved, that all they got from their church was a slap on the back and a handshake and praise the Lord, and it immediately was thrust into ministry, driving a bus or doing this or doing that, and nobody spent the time to help them understand how God looked at them, who they were, to deal with their emotional, physical, and spiritual needs, and then we wonder why they have such a struggle, struggle in life. Sound faith, to me, is the point that you come into your life as a Christian where you become valuable to this ministry. Nothing is going to shake you. You know what you believe. You know why you believe it. You understand God's plan in your life versus God's will in your life. You have a sound mind, a Bible that you can go to for your absolute truth. You have sound doctrine. You have sound words. You have sound speech. Now it's produced a sound faith. And, and that's the goal. That should be our goal. You remember we talked about the ability as you grow spiritually to choose your battles. Christianity is always going to be a warfare, but there comes a time when you need to grow to the point and mature to the point that you understand what's really worth fighting for and what's not. There are some doctrinal things in the Bible that you and I ought to take an absolute stand on. But yet there's other things that people do or they get into that is not necessarily a doctrine in the Bible, but is a conviction or maybe a personal preference. And this is what I want to focus on today as we get into chapter 14, because this is where many times the issues come in. And of course, we now know that chapter 14 is talking about Christians who were weak in the faith. That's not necessarily a bad thing. We would think, you know, when somebody says, well, you're weak in the faith. Well, that's, I'm not weak. It's not a bad thing. What that simply means is that there's somebody in your life, and there are always going to be people in our church like this, and there's always going to be people in your life. There's going to be somebody who may or may not have the light and the truth 
about issues in the Bible to be able to discern between what is a doctrinal thing in the Bible and what is a personal preference or a conviction. And this is really where he starts out in Romans chapter 14. We're going to talk about today in just a moment how to protect the young Christians in our church. We have a lot of people that get saved. We have a lot of people. There probably isn't any time during the week that there isn't 15 or 16 or 17 or 20 people that are new Christians, uh, one way or the other, getting, getting their foundation in the Word of God. And with that responsibility comes a tremendous uh, accountability to make sure that they get everything that they need. And I want to begin reading today in Romans chapter 14. And we'll come down through the first four verses here, and then we'll finish our introduction today talking about probably one of the most important aspects of Christianity that you need to understand. Well, here's what he says. He says in 14.1, Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputation. What he's saying is there that there are going to be people in your church that are weak, and that's not a bad thing. They just maybe got saved, or maybe they've been saved for a long time and never got into the Bible. And now they show up, and here you've been going for five or six, seven years to Thursday night Bible study. You understand that chart. You understand your Bible. And you understand uh, things in the Bible that maybe they don't. But there comes a point where you've got to be careful with what you know. And we're not to come to the point where we, uh, we receive them. But the Bible says not to doubtful disputation. What does that mean? It means there are some things in the Bible you don't dispute over. You've got to be smarter than the problem. And we're going to talk about some of those today. So he says, Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not the doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things. That'd be me. (laughs) Another who is weak eateth herbs. Let him not that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. Now, Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. And we ask you, Father, to help us today to learn some great lessons here as we can begin to put this thing together. And, uh, Father, we'll just thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Help us to prepare ourselves when we get into chapter 14 and 15, that we learn the fundamental things we need to already have in place before we can grasp the great truths of these chapters. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. You're going to find out uh, the more you get into ministry, and this is so true in my life, I, I, it's, it's, it's hard to believe today uh, how true it really is. 90% of what I do in the Bible with people, and a lot of what you're going to do with people in the Bible is, is redefine things that were once defined, but now the definitions are lost. We live in a world today called Christianity that really doesn't know why we believe what we believe. I, I talked a little while ago about, about the term born again or the term being saved or washed in the blood, you know. And those are terms that we, we know the terms, but we don't really define them how to define them in the Bible. Take the word sanctification. Now, that's a big word in the Bible, sanctify. And yet, we, most of us don't understand the definition of that. And you're going to find that we've gotten so far away from the Bible and Christianity. And this is something that I I really try to get across to you people who are working with me with people. I've always tried to stay very um, aware of the people that I'm talking with, dealing with, that I just assume that they understand what I'm saying. Thursday night Bible study is a great example. We have an open forum where you can ask any question you want to ask about the Bible. 
And you know if you show up to 39 Bible study that those things run the gamut between very basic, simple things and pretty heavy theological concepts. My job, as I stand before you, laying those things out, is to never lose sight of the fact that who my audience is. The guy that asked the question may be a third-year Bible Institute student, and he may be stealing something in the Bible that's way beyond most people, and he come up with something, and he wants to know how it works. But I've got to be relevant to the fact that in my crowd, there's probably a lot of people who don't have a clue of understanding the relevance of what he's asking. And uh, I don't, my job is not to confuse anybody because, as we know from the Bible, God is not the author of confusion. And confusion comes in when we don't either stay with the Bible or we don't stay with the people and realize. So you'll see how I'll take an enormous amount of time. I don't do on Thursday night to see how many questions I can get through. I just make sure that whatever questions I do get through, whether it be one, four, five, and you'll notice sometimes it's five, sometimes it's four, sometimes it's three, sometimes it's one. My goal is not to, I don't get paid more for every one I run off. My job is to make sure that the one I do, everybody understands and can get something from it no matter what level you're on. That's the goal. My job is to teach you. My job is to try to give you the best shot I can at whatever the question is. That's not always easy to do, given some of the questions that you ask. I know many of you are afraid to ask questions on Thursday night because you always say this. You know, I think it's a stupid question. Well, if you've been around long enough now, you know that there is no such thing as a stupid question. But some of my answers might be pretty stupid sometimes, so you just got to bear with that. But the bottom line is, most of my ministry is spent redefining things. And I want to talk to you today about a concept that you have to get down if you're ever going to work with people. You have to get down if you're ever going to have to have a workable ministry. This is something that you're going to have to learn if you ever get anything meaningful out of Romans chapter 14 and verse 15. And it's one of the most misunderstood concepts that's not taught anymore today in the churches. And that is understanding the concept of our liberty in Christ one of the most absolute fundamental teachings in the Bible. Most problems within churches between God's people uh, will be a direct or indirect result of not understanding how this thing works. Your job and my job in this church, if you consider yourself a leader, if you consider yourself someone that's spiritually mature, your job and my job really basically and fundamentally is one deal, and that is to solve problems, not cause problems. How do we solve problems? Every church has problems. And wherever you got people, you got problems. But the bottom line is this. We have an absolute standard to solve the problems. I'm not saying that everybody will like the way it's solved, but that really doesn't matter as long as you use the Bible to solve it. Because that's the fundamental thing. We have to be problem solvers, not problem causers. We have to come to the place where we're sitting on something that is explosive. We can do one of two things. We can either diffuse it or we can ignite it. And that is the difference between somebody who knows how to use the Bible and somebody who does not. And yet I say that, that there's some problems that are just unavoidable. When you get into doctrinal issues or somebody does something that is a clear violation of the Word of God, then you've got to deal with it. And it may not be a popular thing to deal with, but that's what you've got to do. Uh, but our job always should be one of diffusing situations and looking how to solve problems and not cause them. And it's really not that hard if you just follow a few basic concepts. We're going to talk about that today. Now, let me just say this to you, and we've got to kind of establish this. 
You remember when we came through Romans chapter 7. Remember that great chapter? Remember how every chapter in Romans dealt with something that after we got past chapter 4 and 5, it dealt with something that was for you and me since Christ died? And you remember in Romans chapter 7, we were dealing with the issue of now that we're saved and Christ has died on the cross, what is our relationship to the Old Testament law? Remember that chapter? You got to have the notes in your Bible. Uh, and if you're keeping up with it. And he used a story there that was, I thought was a great story. And it's a story where he talks about a woman. He goes back under the law, and he talks about a woman that is, that is bound to her husband as long as she lives, which was the Old Testament law. And then he says that the only way that that woman can be free from her husband was for that husband to die. And then if, she do, if he does die then she's free to marry another man. And that, that's basically the, the concept of it. But that's, that story's an analogy. It's, a, it's an example. It's a picture. And what he's saying there is this. He's saying and showing you a picture of what happened today, you and I got saved. He's telling us that the woman is a picture of our soul. The husband is a picture of our flesh. And what he's saying, under the law, the flesh and the soul, like a husband and wife under the Old Testament law, were stuck together. And you couldn't get them separated. One of them had to die. And then he goes on and he talks about the fact that then the husband, the flesh, died. And once the flesh died or the husband died, then that woman is free to marry another man. And of course, in the chapter, the man that she's free to marry is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an analogy, and it's an example showing that when Christ died on the cross, he gave us the ability not to be under the law anymore, that now our flesh was not subject to the law. And he made a way through the cross that your soul and your flesh could be separated. The flesh is now dead, and your soul is free to marry someone else. And we know that person to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was a great example showing us that Christ fulfilled the law, that you and I have been set free from the law. Then I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 2. And you need to see these basic fundamental things before we get into our liberty in Christ. Colossians chapter 2. Look at verse 11, 2.11. In whom also we are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also we are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. Now that sounds like a really, a really hard passage, but it's really not when you understand how we've laid it out in the past. And you, me and you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now look at verse 14. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore, therefore, because what he just said, judge you in meat or in drink or respect of a holy day or the new moon or the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Now, this passage, again, is a, is a great passage. 
And it, it goes right along with Romans chapter 7. And what it shows you and I, basically, is that Christ fulfilled the law. Let's look at it. And this passage, again, reiterates the fact that you and I have been set free from the law. Look at verse 12. Buried with him in baptism. Now, that's not water baptism. That's the baptism of Ephesians chapter 4 and Romans chapter 6. That's by one, bat, by one spirit are you all baptized into one body. That's the true baptism of the Holy Spirit of God that puts you into the body of Christ the moment you got saved. Notice verse 12, operation of God. Notice verse 11, circumcision, made without hand. What does all that mean? That's what he's talking about What he said in Romans chapter 7 that there was a time when your flesh and your soul were stuck fast together. But God, through an operation because of his death on Calvary's cross, separated you. Your flesh is now dead and now your soul is free to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 13 says, you were dead in your sin. That's your old flesh, Romans chapter 7, your husband. And you were bound to him, Romans chapter 7 says. Now look at verse 13. But now are ye quickened. Now I don't know if you know what quickened means in the Bible. But quickened in the Bible is found here in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says the word of God is quick and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing asunder and piercing even the bones of the marrow. When you find the word quick in the Bible or quickened, it's always a picture of salvation in the Bible. Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 5 that when Jesus comes back, he judges the quick and the dead. The quick will be the saved people, the dead will be the unsaved people. So wherever you find the word quick, quickened, lay it out in the Bible, it'll always be a reference to the fact that it's talking about the day you got saved. Now, he says that you've been quickened. And because you got saved and you were quickened by the Holy Spirit of God, verse 14 says, now blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances of the law, and he took it out of the way. That's the Old Testament law. How did he take it out of the way? Look at the last part of that verse. Nailing it to his cross. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he did away with the Old Testament law, and you and I are no longer under it. Now look at verse 16. Let no man therefore judge you in respect to meat, that's what you eat, drink, that's what you drink, holy days, new moon, Sabbath. Why? Because, verse 17, the body is of Christ. We're in the body of Christ, and we're free from the law. And when we learn after, we've also learned this, that after he did away with the law, what did he do? He took all of the Ten Commandments and he put them in two. And those two were called, we studied it, the royal law in James chapter 2 verse 8, the law of Christ in Galatians chapter 6 and in Galatians chapter 5, and all now the Old Testament law has been done away with and fulfilled in Christ have now come to you and me in two concepts. One, love God with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your soul. The second one, love each other as you love yourself. You see? And that's why that we need to understand the great concept of the liberty of Christ. And now that we are in the New Testament, that he nailed the Old Testament to his cross, that no man is to judge you and I in the respect of the things that we do that aren't clearly defined in the Bible as wrong, <clears throat> we now, through grace, have liberty in Christ. And that poses a problem, and this is where our problem comes in. And this is what we've got to understand before we get into chapter 14 and certainly into chapter 15. Now, I'm a Baptist. And as a Baptist, I, uh, I, uh, I always claim myself, somebody says, are you a, what are you? And I say, well, I'm a Baptist with an explanation. 
I believe that, that the Baptist distinctives that go all the way back through church history, uh, they, uh, you, you never find a church by what it's called. Most people make that mistake. You, if you want to find a church, and maybe you're looking for a church, don't ever, don't ever find a church based on what it's called. Find a church based on what it believes. That's how you find a church. Because down through history of the church, there's been certain distinctives that have always, the true church has always held. And I know that every Baptist church doesn't believe the same thing because you got idiots wherever you go. As somebody said one time, wherever you got light, you got bugs. I know that. I know that. But the bottom line is true. It's simply this. I'm not a Baptist because I associated myself with a denominational name. I'm a Baptist or more, more a Bible-believing Christian based on the fact that I believe what the Bible says about certain things. One of the things that I believe, and you do too if you're a member of this church, we also believe in the fact of eternal security. Now, what does that mean? That means that when you trust Christ as your personal Savior, that there's nothing that you can do that you can lose that. Now, I know there's, there's a lot of people that, that believe that you can lose what God gave you, and I understand that. That doesn't change the fact the Bible says you cannot. But I understand also why people get caught up in those things. I had a person one time says, well, and this is my reasoning on it, and I'm not a very smart person, and I have to keep things pretty simple. But I asked a person one time, or a person asked me one time, do I believe in eternal security? And I said, yes, I do. And they said, well, I believe that you can do something uh, that you would, you would lose your salvation. And I asked them, I said, what would make God take his salvation from you? And he said, well, because that you would do something that would make you unworthy to keep that salvation. And that was his answer to me. My question back to him was, how can God take salvation away from me now that I'm not worthy of it when I was no more worthy of it when he gave it to me? Do you actually think that you became worthy of God's salvation at some point? Truth of the matter is, folks, we all had to lose salvation today. If I knew what you knew about you, I mean, if you knew what I knew about me, if, I, if you knew what I knew about me, quit laughing at me now I'm getting my complex. If you, if you knew what I knew about me this morning, you wouldn't even sit here and listen to me. But if I knew what you knew about you this morning, I'd be out of here so fast you wouldn't know what hits you. See? We, there's never a time in our life where we deserve salvation. There's never a time in your life where we're worthy of it. You're as unworthy now with it as you were before the day God saved you. That's why it's by grace are you saved through faith. See, you never deserve it. Once you get it, you still don't deserve it. And that's why David, when he played his prayer as fair in Psalm 51, he said, Lord, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. David knew it wasn't even his salvation. But legitimately, here's what we get criticized for. And I've heard this, I've heard this, and I'm sure you have too. Because with that concept of eternal security, I'm going to stay back at least six feet because I'm in a spitting mood this morning and, you can, and I don't want to get on anybody. Anybody here not been baptized yet? We'll put you in the front row here. No. Here's the bottom line. And this is legitimate criticism. Because with the concept that, that you can't lose your salvation also comes the concept, and here's where some people get hung up on it, comes the concept, well, if I can't lose my salvation, then I can do whatever I want. See? And still go to heaven. And I've actually had people say, oh, you are a Baptist. You believe in eternal security. You believe that once saved, always saved. You believe that once you can save, you can do whatever you want to do. Now, you see, that's a legitimate criticism. 
And believe it or not, I've actually had some of God's people over the years tell me that. But you know what the truth of the matter is if we want to stay with the Bible? If you're really saved this morning and your salvation, you really got it at some point in your life? Anybody I ever met that was truly saved and truly uh, born again, they didn't want to go out and just do wrong. In other words, one of the attributes of being saved is out of the darkness into the light. Part of the concept of salvation is repentance. When you turn from the way that you once were, you understand that. And now you come to the place where when you do something wrong against God, it just kills you that you did it. You don't go out and say, ah, tonight's Saturday night. I'm going to go out and do what I want to do and I'm still going to go to heaven. No, that's not the wrong attitude. If you're truly saved, and very frankly, I would think if somebody would have that attitude, they've probably never been saved. The bottom line is simply this. If you're saved, then you get his nature. And if you're going out and having a great time in the world, and it isn't driving you nuts because you're grieving the Holy Spirit of God inside you, I'd get alone someplace and pull your dipstick and see how low the oil is. I don't think you got it. But that's human nature, isn't it? That's human nature. Now, I'm going to tell you, the Bible, the definitive passage on New Testament liberty, and you want to get this down, is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. We talk, when I talk about liberty, when I'm talking about you not being under the law anymore, now you're under liberty, here's what I'm talking about. For 2 Corinthians 3, 17. Now, the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. You see, now, the real Bible definition is your liberty in Christ wasn't given to you so you could do whatever you wanted to do. You got to get this. Your liberty in Christ was not given so you could do whatever you wanted to do. Your liberty in Christ was given to you so you could do whatever God wanted you to do without the concept of the law. But, oh, we get the definition so messed up. And I'm honest with you. I'll tell you the reason. You've heard me say it many, many times, Thursday night, Sunday morning. We're in the Laodicean church period. And in the Laodicean church period, we know that the word Laodicea means rights of the people. And we as Christians, we as Christians, we think that we have rights as God's people. I I love to listen to the radio talk guys. I don't listen to them much. They give me a headache after a while. but, But everybody likes Glenn Beck. And Glenn Beck is, is, is a, he's on the radio, he's on television at 4 o'clock. And, and he is a great defender of the rights of this country. And he's somebody that gets on there, and you know, they started the Tea Party movements, and he tries to get all those things going. And he's on a kick now, and it has been for quite a while. He's on a kick now where that, uh, the fact that, uh, that they're, they're talking about the fact that they're trying to take away our freedoms in America that the government in time is one by one stepping out your freedoms and taking them from you very subtly right now. And in time, you're going to wake up one morning and every freedom you got is gone. And when you want to push your agenda that way with conservative people, what do you do? You put God in it, see? And the idea is that God gave us certain rights. And that's the big deal today. And that's a hallmark of the Laodicean church. You'll find out that our government goes around killing other people and oppressing other people. And I'm not anti-government. Don't understand me. I was in the military. I fought my country once. I'd fight for it again. I like killing people. I have no problem with it. I didn't mean that last part. But it's legal then, see? I mean, you know what? And where in the world can you just throw a hand grenade? I mean, 
What in life can you do to have more fun than blowing things off? But anyway, so I'm not anti-American, but I am pro-Bible, see? And I understand that America, like all the other nations out of the book of Zechariah, is going to wind up with the Antichrist. I mean, I'm not stupid. Not too stupid, anyhow, but I, I understand those things. And I start talking about, you know, that, that our, our government goes in and, and we, wanted to, we wanted to free Iraqis because of the fact that we wanted to give them a democracy because they needed to be free because of Saddam Hussein. How's that working out for you? The bottom line is this, without wasting a lot of time on this this morning. As human beings, as Christians, we only have one right under God. And it's not the right of free speech. It's not the right to bear arms. It's not the right. The only right you and I have is to die and go to hell and scream our lungs out for all of eternity from a holy God. That's the only right we have. And after you get saved, you have no rights because the Bible says you're bought with a price. What, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you? You have a God. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. You're a slave after you get saved. And this idea that you and I have some kind of rights is not true. And he says, well, here's what we got to do. We got to believe in God. Everybody loves that. Everybody loves the concept of believing in God. And then he says, the second thing we got to have is truth. But you know what? In all of his monologues and every show he has, he'll never bring up the name Jesus Christ. Not one time. Not one time. He'll talk about God. Nobody gets upset when you talk about God. My, that pole can be God to some of you. Your cigarettes are God to some of you. I mean, we all have, everybody has gods. You can make, you can get away with that. You can, anybody can get up and say, let's talk about God or we got God or we believe in God. Everybody loves it. When you bring Jesus Christ into it, boy, you narrow the field, don't you? And then he's got the audacity to say, we believe in God, believe in truth. My Bible says, Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Bad definitions, see? I'm not fighting anybody. I'm just telling you why we're in the mess we're in. I mean, I'm just telling you. I mean, it's just that simple. I mean, you can't take Jesus Christ out of it, and when you do, you're done. Your liberty in Christ was given to you and me so we could do whatever God called us to do, not because you and I wanted to do what we wanted to do. But yet, God gave us a, God gave us a, God didn't give us a hard, fast set of laws like in the Old Testament, did he? You and I are free to make our own choices with really no restrictions. I'll show you what I mean. But the Bible is the book that God gave us within our liberty because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. Your liberty was given to you by the Spirit of God to open up the Bible, find out what was good and bad, and then follow the right precepts to do the right thing. I'll give you one. In the Old Testament, you couldn't, you couldn't marry other nations or other races. You couldn't do it. The nation of Israel was told very clear and plainly they weren't allowed to marry outside their nation, outside their race. That was a law in the Old Testament. We don't have that law today. You can marry whoever you want as long as they're saved. But you know what? You can find somebody, sweetheart, that says he's a saved man, or buddy, you can find some gal that says she's a saved woman, and the bottom line is you think you're safe and you're liberty in Christ, and you marry that person, and then you find out six months later, a year later, two years later, three years later, that she's not, he's not what they claim to be. You know why? Yeah, you had liberty to marry them. They're saved. 
But your liberty wasn't given to you so you could do whatever you wanted to do and marry whoever you want. Your ministry is first if you're a saved person. On top of that is someday you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You realize you married a wrong man, sweetheart, and you could just kiss your whole judgment seat of Christ away? You, mar- you understand, pal, you can marry the wrong woman and you could just kiss your millennial reward right out the window. Because that's how important that is. And yet, in liberty, you marry whoever you want. But God gave you a book with principles that showed you the guidelines by which you do those things and make those choices. You're not free just to do whatever you want to do. That liberty was given to you so you could keep your ministry and your priorities straight and understand that God has a job for you to do. And within that job, you have liberty by the Spirit of God to take the book that God wrote you and make the right decisions because you're not under a hard, fast law. In the Old Testament, you didn't have a choice in it. You didn't look up nothing. You knew what was right and what was wrong. You didn't have a say in it. Today, you do. Nobody tells you where you can go. I mean, uh, you don't, there's no church that has a right to say, well, you can't go here and go there. Some of them try to do that. But you know what? I mean, there's clear places in the Bible you know you shouldn't go. God wrote you a book where the Spirit of the Lord is. There's liberty. And the bottom line is when you get into that book, you'll find out where you should go and where you shouldn't go. And when your ministry is on the line and you're responsible to other people, it'll make you more aware of places you should not go and the things you should not do. Just that simple. Just that simple. There's no laws of what you can eat, what you can't eat. There's no, there's no, there's no laws today uh, that, uh, that, that holds you to any particular holiday or holy day or Christian day. And you have, the, you have the liberty to make your own choices based on the Word of God that God has given to you and the Spirit of God He's put into your heart. But at the same time, Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13 says this. And here's what happens. Because we don't understand the definition of it. For brethren, you have not been called unto liberty. You have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for the occasion of the flesh, but by love serve one another. See that thing? You've been called to a liberty, but not to use it for the flesh. Your liberty in Christ isn't so you can do whatever you want to do. Bulldoze over anybody you want to bulldoze over. There has to be a process. And in this passage, in Romans chapter 14, you start to see this thing work itself out. In reality, he's basically saying to you and me, we need to understand our liberty. Our job as Christians is to solve problems, not cause them. We fix things, we don't destroy them. Now, sometimes the process you take in the Bible is going to, it's going to cause a destruction, but that's beside the point. We don't, we don't get outside of the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16 says, As free, we are, no law, and not using your liberty as a cloak of, of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. And I say it again, our, our liberty wasn't given to you and me so we could wear what we want to wear, do what we want to do, go where we want to go, be what we want to be. Our liberty was given to us through the Spirit of God and the Word of God that we would have the freedom to minister the way God wants us to minister. In the Bible, it's called stewardship. It's called stewardship. And when I got saved, God, God gave me things to be stewards over. One of them was my family. When you got saved, God gave you some things to be stewards over. One of them is your family. When you grow and you got to the point where you get where you, uh, God wants you to be in your life, and then God, well, God, will give you, uh, God will give you add things to be that steward. 
When I got to the point when God wanted me in the ministry, then at some point God took his ministry, gave it to me, and then clearly said, Bob, I'm giving you this. With it comes responsibility and accountability because now I'm giving you this ministry, but you it's, it's, it's yours, but it's mine, but it's yours in the sense that you're doing it for me, therefore you're my steward in the thing. And then he gave me a whole list of things that I'm to be a steward over. You might God, people don't even know what they are today. That's a tragedy. But then definition is our problem, isn't it? Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 20. Boy, it's a great passage. I got a great sermon on it, but probably too rough to preach. We preached a rough one last week. I'm back to my apostate mode this morning. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you say. I know. Oh, yeah, give it to that every week. Oh, yeah, and that'll last about how long? Yeah, right. Now, the bottom line is simply this. He's in Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 20. He says, I sought for a man. I sought for a man. I sought for a man that would stand before me and stand in the gap. I got a message about God looking for a man. I got a message about the kind of man God looks for. That was back in 606 B.C. or there about that time. And God was looking for a man back there that would make up the hedge. Stand in the gap. You know what the gap is? The gap is the, the, the hole that they've cut in the line. The enemy. And he says, I'm looking for a man to stand in the hedge and make up the gap. But you know what he said? Found none. He couldn't find any back there. You know what? God's still looking for that man today or that woman today. And he can't find him today. Can't find him. It's because we don't understand that our, our, our ministry is stewardship. And with ministry comes accountability and responsibility. And with ministry, sometimes you have to make the hard decision. We, it's hard to find men today who will make the right decision and the hard decision. It's hard to find women today that will make the right decision or the hard decision when it's right to make. And that's the problem we have in, in, in ministry today. Your liberty was to serve one another. And you never want to be a stumbling block in a young Christian's life, a weaker Christian, by abusing your liberty. And, uh, you know, even though I have a right uh, to basically do whatever I want because I'm under the law, that doesn't mean I can just go out and do whatever I want. God has a plan. He has a mission for me. That mission has to come first. That's why the Bible says, let not your good be evil spoken of. That's why the Bible says to you and me that we're to abstain from all appearances of evil. That's why the Bible says that we are to walk circumspectly. What does that mean, circumspectly? Well, circle is a circle. Uh, go around in a circle. Uh, and it means that you walk around things instead of going through things that are dangerous. You avoid them is what it's saying. And he says in Romans chapter 14, verse 1, that we are to receive the weaker Christians, but not the doubtful disputations. You know, the job of a, of a New Testament church is a very basic, simple format. And it's so basic and easy. And I know there's a lot of parts to it, a lot of movement going on. But when you look at a church and you look at it from the New Testament of what God designed it to be, basically in its fundamental format, it's simply the older Christians who know the Bible helping the younger Christians who don't know the Bible. It's Romans 15.1, ye that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. Now, what does that mean? Ye that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. 
because of the fact that if you're mature, if you've been around for a while, if you've got yourself grounded in the Bible, if you're worked through those processes, you realize that there's always going to be younger Christians coming in who do not have the light that you and I have. And our job is through the Bible and what you know to help them, certainly not hurt them. We were talking to the ladies' prayer group and the men's prayer group here in our second session on our Saturdays. I was going through the nine gates because many of them, if not most of them, were not here when we did that. And I wanted them to understand how those nine gates out of Ezra and Nehemiah really work into our ministry. And in Nehemiah, we got to down through there. And one of them that I want to show you how it fits in today. And I told you, I didn't, I didn't read this passage in Nehemiah. I told you to read it. And I had in mind uh, sometime down the line today that we would go through it. And I asked you to read that for yourself so you would have it. But turn over to Nehemiah chapter 8. One of those nine gates is called a water gate. Now, this is not the one that Nixon went through. This is God's water gate. Most of you don't even know who Nixon is anymore. Sometimes it's just better to say nothing. <laughs> now, this Watergate I told you is a picture of our Bible teaching and our Bible, uh, Bible, yeah, Bible prison ministry. That's where you're in here. Yeah, it's a picture of our Bible preaching and our Bible teaching ministry. Now, historically, the Watergate was a gate that the water came into the city through a viaduct. It was a, it was a, it was where the city got their water from. We know that in the Bible, water is a type of the Word of God. The woman at the well in John 4, see, she came to that well every day to get water. And then one day she came there and she met the Lord. And the Lord said, uh, the water I give you will spring into wells of everlasting life. And she got saved, see. And she took the everlasting water. So it's a picture of, 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 of being saved or the Word of God in the Bible. And if you notice down through here that, that, uh, that this water, uh, when you're coming down through here, is, is always flowing. It's always moving. My job as a pastor of this church is to always keep the water flowing. What happens in churches when the water stops flowing, the water becomes stagnant, it becomes stale, and it begins to smell. The job of leadership in a church is always to keep the water flowing. You know where it has to keep flowing first? In your own personal life. You have to keep the water flowing in your life. What does that mean? You have to keep growing spiritually yourself. And when you don't, you get stale, you get stagnant. And uh, when a church doesn't keep on doing it, then they get stale and they get stagnant. That water gate was where the water flowed into the city for the people to have all the water that they needed. And it was always flowing, and that is the job of this church. This is the job of the function in its big basic form of our Iron Man sharpeneth groups, our prayer groups that we're starting this first of this year. I've told you many, many times that in time, I want these groups to develop. Right now, I'm looking at people who have the ability to lead and do a good job with it and watch what they do with the people. And out of that, you know, in time, maybe not this year, maybe not next year. But in time, I want those prayer groups, I want those prayer groups to develop into self-contained groups. We have a discipleship program in our church for basic Christians. We have a Discipleship 2 program for people who are a little farther along. We have a lot of people come in with marital counseling. 
So we have, we have that kind of aspect. We're going to start biblical New Testament counseling once we're done with our third year of institute. That'll make up the fourth and final year of it. And uh, because uh, many of you are dealing with people. And, uh, you know, you, you come to the point where you, uh, uh, you, you, you always are touching people's lives. And in time, I want these groups to be self-contained. I want to be able to, for those groups to take uh, somebody that comes in and you have within your group of four or five gals, everything you need to do any of those things. That it's all self-contained. You work as a ministry team together with younger Christians. The, the leader of that group will be smart enough to know that as that group grows and you get 12, 15 people in it, somewhere in there, that then your job is to train somebody that in your mind sees somebody to be a leader. And when you get your group big, then you split that group and they take that group. And the whole process starts over again. The mark of a healthy church, the mark of a healthy church is one concept. It's just one concept. And I know I throw a lot of things at you, you know, and different things. But at the end of the day, the mark of a healthy church is just one basic concept, and that's its ability to reproduce. It's just that simple. That is a biblical format all the way through the Bible. God reproduced himself in his son. See? So Jesus Christ came down to this earth. You know what Jesus Christ did? He reproduced himself in me. You know what your job is in this church? Your job is to reproduce yourself into others. You know what the ultimate job is for our church? See, most churches just stop there. But you can't stop there. Because the multiplication process of reproducing goes all the way down. Yeah, God reproduced himself in his son. His son reproduced himself in me and you. You reproduce yourself in somebody else. But it gets stagnant that this church doesn't reproduce itself as a church someplace else. Now, why do you think when we got to this great time in our growth process, after seven years almost of laying the foundation and digging all the stuff out of the rock, why do you think when we got this year started and we get this year moving and the prayer groups start together and then bang, 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 we get two churches that we get a chance to reproduce ourselves in? Because that's the process. Some of you don't see that. Some of you don't see that. Some of you, and I told you this before, every church is made up of people who are in the inside of ministry and the outside of ministry. Churches are made up of people who all they see is the wrong thing with the church, and other people all they see is the right thing with the church. And of course, that's just the way it works. That's just the way it is. It's always going to be that way. And my goal is to, you know, the church at Warrensburg is a great deal, and it's one of those things where, where it, it gave us an opportunity for you, some of you guys to go down and teach. And, of course, the mission is another place. But you notice how God, as we grow, God is giving us more places to preach. Now, this Wichita deal is a totally whole other deal. I've known these people down here for probably, I look at the, I look at the thing in Warrensburg as a temporary deal. I mean, we'll do it forever, but sooner or later, you know, those kids are going to grow or go out someplace. And it, but the church in Wichita, uh, the place in Wichita, see, these people have been around for quite a while. I've known these people 20, 30 years. They have no church in Wichita. And they're excited, and they're talking about the fact that <clears throat> there's lots of people down there that can't find a church. And I'm just telling you, I mean, I don't read the hand of God or the mind of God any more than he gives me the revelation out of the Bible. But I'm telling you, here's a place that down the line someplace, you talk about our church reproducing itself. Here's an opportunity to do that. But see, I have a plan. 
I have a plan. I want you older guys. See, this is not something where I want, I, want, I want teams of two guys and two girls to go down there. And I want one guy who's going to have to really be able to teach the Bible on a higher level because you're not going to be able to go down and wing this. You're going to have to. This is where you guys who have done the Word of God, got into the book, stayed in the thing and grown. You're now you're going to get to the next level in your own personal relationship and ability to teach. But it just isn't going about going down there. It's about you taking three or four, two, one younger Christians down there and teach them the same process that I've taught you. It isn't just about reproducing yourself by bringing somebody to get saved. It's about reproducing what you know in the Bible. We talk about the three Ps, perspective, passion, and, and, and purpose. You know what? What's your perspective of this church? Why, what's your perspective of being here today? And the obvious answer would be, well, I, my perspective is I come to get taught the Bible. See, that's your perspective. You know what my perspective is? You come here to teach the Bible. I teach you the Bible so you can go teach somebody else. That's my perspective. Now, I know that that won't happen in everybody's life. It's just the way that it is. But that doesn't mean that that's not the way it should be. Now, I'll tell you what. We have an opportunity we have an opportunity to, to reproduce ourselves as a church. And through that, everything we need to look at and build, we need to build the older ones, helping the younger ones, realizing that we're here to solve problems. And sometimes that means making the hard decision in face of your friends or your relatives when it comes to the book. That's tough. But that's what the function of this church has to be. It has to be train you and then you train somebody else. Now, I want you to see this here. And nothing explains this better than Nehemiah chapter 8. And to me, this is the method to my madness. This is my picture in my mind many, many years ago. I told you when we started our church, the format I took you through was Ezra and Nehemiah. Everybody should know that. And I've laid it out many, many times. But when it comes to my Bible and teaching and preaching ministry, it's Nehemiah chapter 8 is the pattern that I follow. Now, I want you to see this. Remember now, three P's, perspective, purpose, and passion. Now watch, 8-1. I'm going to read it all, and then we'll come down through it and deal with it. All the people gathered themselves together as one man in the street that went before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday, before the men and the women and those that could understand, and all the ears of the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe took up out a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Matthia and Shema and Aniah and uh, Urijah and Hilkiah, and Masaiah, and his right hand on his left hand was Paniah, Mishul, uh, Malshai, and Hesham, and Hashabaniah, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Glad that's over. <laughs> and, Ezra, and Ezra opened the book in sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with the lifting up of their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, and Bani, and Shebaniah, Jamin, Achab, uh, Shephathiah, Hojiah, uh, Mathahiah, uh, Kelita, uh, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Paniah, 
And the Levites caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense, and caused them to understand the reading. Now, within this passage right here, these few eight verses, is everything our church, as far as the teaching in the Bible ministry, is. In here is the job of all of us. And maybe you've never seen it to this point, but uh, everything, you've heard me say it many, many times, and I firmly believe this, everything rises and falls on leadership. And that's why you understand, and I made it no secret, that if you're a deacon in this church or you're a leader in this church or someplace else, I hold you a higher accountability than I do the average person who walks in here because everything has to rise and fall on leadership. It's just that simple. Now, I want you to look at verse 8. And I want you to notice some great characteristics here that I try to build into this church. And maybe it'll help you today get a better understanding what your job is. I don't know. <clears throat> First thing I want you to see is they had a unity. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man. See that thing? There has to be unity. Now, our unity is not built around a personality, me or you or anybody else. Our unity has to be built around the Word of God. If the book is an absolute supreme and we don't all follow it, we got to have the same rules for everybody. You can't say you're a member of the leadership team in this church and do this and do that and then not follow what the principles are. If it's wrong for the other person, then it's wrong for us. You have to deal with everything and keep that unity. Uh, and sometimes unity, keeping it is not always a good thing. I mean, a good thing from the fact to keep the unity, but sometimes you have to deal with issues to maintain the unity. That's called the hard decisions in ministry. Most people, most men cannot make. All right, the second thing, look at verse 3. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from morning unto mid, uh, midday, before the men and the women and those that could understand, and all the ears of the people were attentive under the book of the law. The first thing I want you to see is that they, they, didn't get, they, they, they started at 6 o'clock in the morning reading the book and went till 12 noon. Four hours. Six hours. <laughs> well, they took two hours off to go get a snack someplace. Six hours. So today, <laughs> oh yeah, I know how that would go. But my point is this, they had a love for the book. And you know what? And I'm not saying you got to go six hours in a service or a Bible study to be spiritual. I'm not saying that at all. But the point is simply this. Most churches you go, you get, here's what you get. You get 45 minutes, we need more money. And then another 20 minutes, the son of we need more money. And then you get 10 minutes of the Bible, see? And um, the bottom line is simply this. These people had a love for the book. And yet I want you to see this also. Verse 3 says that they paid attention. They were attentive under the book of the law. Then I want you to see this. There's two people groups in this verse, if you didn't caught it yet. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday, before the men and the women. See that thing? Before the men and the women comma, that's your first group, and then the second group, and those that could understand. Two groups. You have the older people who understood what was going on. They had all the men and women that were younger that did not what was going on. You got two groups here. You got the same two groups you have in this church here this morning. You got those that have been around for a while and you should know what's going on, and you got those that have come in and you're trying to figure out what's going on. 
Now I want you to see, I want you to see the next thing. Look at verse 4. And Ezra, the scribe, stood up on a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose, all right? We talked about our three Ps. There's, your, there's purpose right there. They had a purpose for the pulpit. <clears throat> You'll find it in most Baptist churches, and this is where it was started. You'll find a pulpit is in the middle. You'll go to some churches, the pulpit's over to the left or the right, or they got a split pulpit or whatever the case that you'll find in, in biblical New Testament Baptist churches when they started to meet in churches or wherever they was, the pulpit was in the middle. You know why? Because they understood what that pulpit was for. That pulpit was for the preaching of the Word of God, and they wanted that pulpit dead center in the middle so everybody knew that the, the focus in that church was on the pulpit because that pulpit had a purpose, and the purpose was declaring the Word of God. We have one reason for being here today, and that's why this pulpit's here. That's why it's in the middle. It's here for one reason, because it stands for what we do, and that is the centralization of the Word of God is the most important thing in your life, and declaring it. So they had a pulpit with a purpose. Then I want you to see verses uh, 4 and 5 again. And Ezra the scribe stood up on a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. Now watch it. And beside him stood Matthiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uzziah, Hilkiah, all the people who are the older ones are standing with him. We had in our ladies' meeting last week or two weeks ago when uh, one of our ladies gave an incredible testimony. And, and I built, you know, the whole thing I wanted to do. I wanted to give her, give Leah the chance to lay it out. And I was simply going to build on her. And she said a number of things that were incredible. But one of the things she said is she had to ask herself, and she was basically asking the ladies that morning, was what is your purpose in this church? And boy, that, that hit like a ton of bricks. And I brought that, and I think I even mentioned it either on Thursday night or Sunday morning at some other point. But that's the, the first question that we got to look at looking at this is, what is your purpose for being here this morning? Once you read this, you find that the people were in two groups. You find that there was a unity. They find that this water gate is a picture of where the Word of God and where it was taught. And they opened up the Word of God. They're reading it. They're attentive to it. And yet they had a purpose to it. And yet when you come down through there, there was two people groups. There was the ones who, who, who were the younger ones. And then there was the ones who understood. And yet when you come down through here, when Ezra got up to declare the purpose, did you see that? When Ezra got up to declare the purpose, even though he stood up by himself, he wasn't by himself. Because the Bible says, for Ezra the scribe, pulpit of wood, and they made for the purpose, and beside him stood. There were people standing with him. I have two questions for everybody in this church. It's simply this. What's your purpose here this morning? And who stands with me? Now, I don't ask you to who stands with me in the sense of, of whatever, other than who stands with me to take the younger ones and teach them the Bible. Because that's our goal. We don't have any other reason for being here. I mean, I don't know why you're here today, but if you're an older person, you ought to be here around for a while. You ought to be here for one reason, and that is to understand that your job is to help the younger ones. And if you're a younger person here today, you ought to understand that your job is to get to the point where you can help somebody else out. Look at verse 8. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly. And gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. See that thing? The older people were reading the word of God distinctly. They're found again in verse 7. And the Bible says, and all these people in verse 7 of Levites, they caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. This church has people who want to understand the word of God, and it's up to us as the older Christians to help them get to that point. 
We stand together in a unity to help younger Christians understand the Word of God. Verse 8, so they read in the book of the law of God distinctly. You learn that book distinctly and gave the sense. We call it doctrinally, inspirationally, and historically. So they read in the book of the, in the, in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them, caused them, caused them. There's your perspective. You see, the pulpit was for the purpose. The younger people helping the older people helping the younger ones, there is your perspective. They get them to understand the Bible. Now look down at verse, uh, at verse, at verse 9. And Nehemiah, which was uh, Tersheba, uh, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, and said unto the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep. Watch it. For all the people wept. There's their passion. See that thing? They had a purpose. The purpose was the pulpit to put out the word of God. The job of every older Christian in that, in that place was to help the younger ones get to it and read the word of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. And when they did that, the people got the right passion because they got the right teaching. Now look at verse 10. Here it comes. Then said he unto them, go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet. And send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. That's our job. There's the end result. The end result is to you and me to get trained spiritually. You to get what you need out of the Word of God and what God does. God takes you down to Warrensburg. He takes you down to Wichita. He'll take you back to work. He'll take you wherever he goes. And you sit around here and you eat the fat and you drink the sweet. But you know what he does with you then? He sends you to somebody for whom nothing is prepared. And the process starts all over again. You got to see that. You just got to see that. And everything we do here, we have to always keep our perspective, our purpose, and our passion. In everything that we do, we've always got to consider the weak Christians, the struggling ones, and try to help them get farther down the line. You know, when I think of all this, I think of the, I think of the church at Corinth. And the church at Corinth was one of the most messed up churches. And we're going to get into it a little bit when we get into 2 Corinthians when we're done. But the church at Corinth was one of the most screwed up, messed up churches. You talk about a church that has lost the three Ps and have no idea what's going on. They are. And I'll tell you what, every wrong definition we get today is because somebody in 1 Corinthians had a, had a wrong idea about it. I don't know of another book in the Bible that matches up to where we are at today as the body of Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.11, he says there's contentions among you. He says in 1.10, there's divisions among you. You can't all speak the same thing. It's abundantly clear that they have lost their perspective, their purpose, and their passion. And yet if you'd have walked into that church, you'd have seen banners up and flags up and Christian crosses everywhere and a whole nine yards. And yet they've come to the place where Paul says, he says, you know what? In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, And brethren, I could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as babies in Christ. Have I fed you with milk and not with meat? For hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither are you able yet uh, able for ye are carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? You know what he says? He says, this church is full of babies. 
You got divisions. You got strife. You're not helping each other. You're not working together. You got every problem in the world. He says, I haven't given you any meat because all I can do is feed you milk. And here you are. You've been in church now for four or five years, and I still can't give you any meat because you walk around like men, but in reality, you're just a bunch of spiritual babies. This church has completely lost its way and has no idea of its calling to God. And they are absolutely abusing their liberty. It's no wonder when it comes to understanding your liberty and my liberty that we find two of the greatest verses found in 1 Corinthians. And this is what I want to talk to you about here as we bring this thing to a close this morning. And the first one's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. Remember, your liberty is given to you by the Spirit of the Lord to do what God wants you to do with your life, not you and I to do what we want to do with our life. But we're under liberty. Every day in your life, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to have to make choices and make decisions. And you make the right ones, you're going to get along fine. You make the wrong ones, you're going to pay the price for it. And boy, I'll tell you what, it could cost you dearly by just making some bad choices. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. All things are lawful unto me. You're in liberty in Christ. All things are lawful unto me. But all things are not expedient. The word expedient is another word, our word for wise. He says all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. See, as Christians, we should be, uh, we should be different from the world. One of the words we don't understand today is separation. And uh, you know what? The, the church today ha- is, is married to the world, much like our church in Pergamos was when we studied in church history. What we try to do to reach people is we try to bring the church down to a worldly level. We try to make our services more worldly, so we have contemporary services now. Now, if you don't like to go to church on Sunday morning, you ought to see the churches that are doing away with Sunday morning church service and having their church services on Saturday night. You know why? Because people don't want to get up on Sunday morning to go to church anymore. The church has bent itself to meet where the people are. Now, it doesn't matter that the Bible tells you very clearly that they, in a New Testament church in the book of Acts, they met on the first day of the week. That seems not to have any issue here at all. We want to do what we want to do. That's liberty, see? But it's not liberty based. It's a liberty that you can't take. That Bible very clear when the New Testament Christians met. Now, if you want to meet on Saturday night, that's up to you. But the bottom line is you don't sacrifice your Sunday morning service, which is laid out doctrinally in the Bible, just for what? Because the people don't want to get up. That's where we're at. When I grew up, rock music was very clearly what it was. But you see, we wanted to reach people. So what we did, we brought Christian rock into it, whatever that is. Now, I like rock and roll. You might not think that about me, but I'm a roll rock and roller from way back when. Mm-hmm. No, I am. I am. Rock and roll. Absolutely. Absolutely. My feet's on the rock and my name's on the roll. Now, you thought I was going somewhere else with that, didn't you? See? You see, I'm not oblivious to this. When I was a young man, uh, I, I used to play the trumpet. 
And I was a fairly good trumpet player. I wasn't a very real good trumpet player, but I could fake my way along pretty well. And I played a lot of, you know, I, I, when I my senior year of high school, I toured Europe for a couple of months uh, with, a, with a band that was playing over there and all that stuff. So I know how the thing works. My big deal, my stuff back then was dance bands, see? And I remember the lesson God taught me about this. And this is my own personal testimony now to some degree. And, I, uh, and I, so I got saved right with God. I, I still had my trumpet in my hand. And I was still hooked up with, you know, some of the big guys that were playing back there. And uh, on Saturday nights, I'd go out and play at Myers Lake and the ballroom and places like that. And, and I'd play the dance band, you know, and then I'd get up and go to church in the morning. And for a long time, you know, I thought that was just fine. And then as I got growing into the thing, as I got growing into the thing, I come to the point where they, I, I started learning my Bible a little bit, and they asked me to teach. And I'll never forget this. I taught a couple of things, and I was obviously, you know, pretty good at it, or they didn't have much to call on, maybe, I don't know. But anyway, as time went on, I got asked to teach a, a, a couple of Sunday school classes with fairly large people in them, you know, not fairly large people, but large, large crowd people. What are you laughing at, Zach? What are you talking about? You, he's the only guy I know who walks around with his shoe off on one foot. You know why? Because he doesn't want to get it caught in his mouth when he puts it in all the time. <laughs> my buddy. Anyway. You said I could stop you anytime I'm pre-preaching and just let you have it. Is that right? Yeah, huh? that's right. Will you be the same way? Yes, sir. Okay, okay. <laughs> I don't want to hear any wham-whams now from you. I got my eyes on you. I'm watching everything you do. No, I'm just kidding. I'll never forget this night. I was, I was teaching a Sunday school class for a college-age kid the, the, the next morning. About 200 people. But I had a dance band gig that night, and, uh, and, I, and I played it. And I was as happy as a frog in the, in the world. I mean, I had everything. You know, when I was saved, and my wife had just gotten saved. She wasn't my wife then, but she had just gotten saved. And I had the best of both worlds, you know, and I was just having a great time. And I'll never forget, I, would, I had played that night, and, you know, I, I was driving to church that morning and all ready to go. And I was just happy as can be. And the Lord come down, and he says... He said, are you happy this morning? I said, oh, I'm just happy. He said, did you have a good night last night? And he said, yeah. He said, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. What do, you, what do you want to ask me? He says, how do you justify the fact that last night you stood up there, and boy, that was a hot lick you played on a string of pearls. He said, how do you justify last night you fed all of those unsaved people's flesh, and now this morning you're going into my house with my children, and you're going to feed their spirits? Well, tell me how that works. I never thought of that. You know what I did that right at that point? Never picked that trumpet up again as far as playing for the world. I had to come to a point in my life when I realized that, you know what, I can't have one foot in both things. I had to make up my mind, so then I started playing for the Lord. And boy, that's when God opened it up. Then I started traveling around with another preacher, and he'd preach, and I'd play and blew, play the trumpet and play this thing, boy, and I, I'd play Onward Christian Soldiers, and the role was caught up yonder, boy, and I used to go down to Steubenville and West Virginia and, and Southern Ohio and places like that, Bridgeport, and down, boy, I'll tell you what, we had some of the greatest revivals in the world, but I had to come to the place that I realized that I had to be separate. You see, it was my liberty to do that. All things were lawful, but not all things were expedient. And I had to come to the place in my life that I realized that separation meant what it means, separation. And it's just that simple. You've got to get past the idea that you have to look like the world to reach the world. All things may be lawful, but it's not all things are not expedient because it may be a stumbling block to a weaker Christian. And then he goes on and he says, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And that is because, remember, the Spirit of the Lord is the source of our liberty. It's the source of our liberty. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 says that once you got saved, one of the seven things that changed about your day you got saved, I'll give you one of them. The Bible says you're now an ambassador for Christ. You know what an ambassador is? 
An ambassador is somebody that goes to a foreign land and represents his home country in that foreign land. I guarantee you, if you went to Washington, D.C., and you'd go down Ambassador Row where all the embassies are, and you'd go into the ambassador of Thailand, and it was Thanksgiving, I guarantee you he's not celebrating Thanksgiving. But in Thailand, they have the Beyond Checkout Day, whatever that is. And while we're over here doing our deal, he's celebrating his deal. You know why? Because he may be in this country, but he's not a citizen in this country. He's only an ambassador from his foreign country. So he may be here, but he doesn't partake of all the things that Americans do because he's not American, all right? The day you got saved, my citizenship changed. My passport got stamped and a new one, and now I'm seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. But then he sent me back to be an ambassador. And I'm representing heaven. You can't represent heaven while you're living like the world. You can't represent heaven while you're looking like the world. You can't represent heaven while you smell like the world. You got to be separate. Now, is it lawful? Absolutely, because you're not under the law. Is it expedient? Absolutely not. There has to be a difference. This is our liberty in Christ. This is our liberty in Christ. Two great words come up with this: discernment and discretion. And God's people come to the point where you know there's certain religious groups, and I don't, I don't argue with them. I don't care one way or the other, so I won't even mention them. There's certain religious group, Protestants included, that the pastor wears a certain suit of clothes to set him apart. I had a chance to preach a funeral for a guy that was up at the gym where I work out, and I got to know him, and he helped some of you families out at Christmas, and you never even knew it, and he was the same guy. I witnessed to him a lot. Well, he died, He died, and his wife called me and asked me to do the funeral, and a lot of the people from the, uh, a lot of the, people from the gym, gym came there. I had a tremendous opportunity to witness. There's one old boy up there that his name is Don, and I love Don to death. And Don is going to probably die and split hell wide open. I mean, he thinks he's going to work his way to heaven. But Don come up and he said, I'd like you to, he said, that was the most, he says, he says, my preacher, he said, I've never heard a preacher say anything like that about anybody. My preacher just does about five minutes, you know, and then he's done. And I said, well, I said, I don't know what to tell you, Don. He said, what I want you to do, will you do my funeral? And I said, well, I, yeah, if you're, you know, I'll, I'll be glad to do your funeral. He said, but Don, I have one stipulation. I said, what's that? He said, you got to wear a robe. He says, you're not a man of God without a robe. Now, you're laughing, but you know these people that think that? I told him I'd wear a white sheet. I said, how would that work for you? You know, just put a, I, I said, I, 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 you know what? He, and he confirmed in his mind that if, you don't, if you're a pastor, you don't wear a robe. He, he, what does it say? His, key, his thing is, he says, you're legitimate when you wear a robe. And, you know, and there's people who actually think that they're, 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 they're pastor or priest or whatever because he wears a special suit of clothes that that, it makes him, that makes him holy. There isn't no clothes that make you holy. You can't go buy holy clothes unless it's a second-hand store. <laughs> that ain't the holy you're looking for. See? You can't buy clothes and put them on and be holy. You're not any holier than, than who reigns inside you. But that's the key, see? Now, you can put all of those things on and you can still be as, as wicked as the world as you could ever want to be. It doesn't prove anything. Now, the second verse also found in 1 Corinthians is found in chapter 10, verse 23. And, and here's another great one. It goes right along with, almost says the same thing with just a little twist on it that makes a lot more uh, understanding. He says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient, just like the last verse. But then here's where it really gets defined for you. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. See? Hey, listen to me. I'm not under the law, nor are you. 
I basically, unless it's just a clear thing in the Bible that we know is deadly wrong, there's just, we can go just to do about anything or anywhere. But the bottom line is two things you've got to be careful on. First of all, you don't want to use your liberty as a stumbling block or the occasion of the flesh, okay? Second thing is this. You don't want to be brought under the power of any. Nothing wrong with going golfing, see? But not on Sunday morning when they ought to be in church. See the thing? I mean, there's nothing wrong with golfing itself. But you don't do it when it takes the place of taking something away that you know where you need to be because that's what God wants you to do. And, and the bottom line is, you don't want to be brought under the power of any. And then the other thing says here, he says, that not all things, all things are lawful, but not all things edify. Now, that's a great word. You know what that word means? That means that everything you and I do as a Christian, everything that you and I do as a Christian, should help other Christians get stronger. I tell you all the time, and I don't say this because I do it all the time, I, I mean, I have as much trouble with this as anybody else, man. I mean, I like to have a good time, you know, and I mean, I just, but, you know, you got to be careful. But I, I, I look at those things and I say to myself, you know what, every day of my life, I got eight or nine people I'm going to see today. I got this I got to do today. And my goal is wherever I go, whoever I meet, whoever I talk with, God, allow me to leave them stronger than I found them today. That ought to be our goal. If, you know, my grandmother used to say, if you can't say nice about something about somebody, then don't say nothing. Why not, why, if you can't edify somebody and you can't help make them stronger, why would you say something that would make them stumble? I, I, I don't understand why we do that. That's not the mark of spiritual maturity. My job, your job as a mature Christian, is all things are lawful. You can go where you want to go. You can dress the way you want to dress. You can, you can pretty much do whatever you want to do. But that doesn't mean it's the right thing to do just because there's no written law on it. We've always got to look at the fact that we're an ambassador. We never want to do anything that would compromise the, the concept of Christ. We never want to do anything that would embarrass our homeland, heaven. Therefore, everything we do, we need to look, we need to do it cleaner clearer and better because of the fact that of who we are. Edifying is the key. The job of the church in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 12, he simply says, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints. There it is. That's our first job is to perfect the saints. That's everything we saw back there in Nehemiah. That's our job. The number one job of this church is to perfect the saints. Help you in your walk with God get better. Every one of us. That is our final fundamental responsibility. Perfecting of the saints. Then look at the next thing. For the work of the ministry. My goal someday is for every one of you to be in ministry. Right now we're, we're working through these prayer groups. In time I, I envision these prayer groups to be self-contained ministries. Where I've got 20 or 30 of them that basically are self-contained. Everything somebody needs can get put into there and get everything they need to grow. And then the last thing he says down through there, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That's our job. My job is to help you grow, not to hurt you grow. That's why I tell you all the time, you know what? You've got to choose your battles. There are some issues that you don't make a big deal about, and then there's other issues that you just clear up a spot and you've got to hold the line when they're doctrinal. But our job it needs to be one to protect the younger people in this church. 
That's our job. And not just to protect them, but help bring them to the place where they grow by the older ones understanding our perspective, our purpose, and our passion. And then Romans chapter 14, the same chapter in verse 19, he simply says this, Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. Leaving people better than you find them. You know, that as we enter chapter 14, which we're going to do next week, we need to see and understand our liberty in Christ. That we, we're not under the law. Christ did away with the law. We're not under the law. All things are lawful, but we need to view our liberty as a privilege and not a right. From the standpoint of us being an ambassador to Christ. Our job is to, is to, as mature Christians is to balance our liberty with biblical principles, growing, growing up in the areas of our lives uh, and helping the younger Christians for the sake of this ministry. And Romans chapter 14 lays that things out. Really, we're going to talk about this next week. Romans chapter 14 is probably built around four or five of the greatest single concepts, and that's how we're going to approach it, that you're ever going to find that you want to remember in your life when dealing with people. Our job is to protect the weaker Christians, to help them get to the place where they get the light and grow the same way you did and not becoming a stumbling block to them. And even though there are some things we, we can do that are under the law, there's things that are not wise to do because they'll bring us out from under the power of the Holy Spirit of God and under the power of something else. And remember, the, where, the, where the Spirit of the Lord is, that's where your liberty is. Not to do what you want to do, but to do what Christ wants you to do. Well, we're going to be done here in just a second, and we'll be finished. And let me say as we get dismissed, all of you go back to Barb quickly so she can get that done. I do tell you that over on the thing back here, uh, if you're going to sign up to help me with a Wichita, um, I, want, uh, I want to send teams of two guys and two girls down. And uh, I want to work that thing where uh, we're going to go down. Uh, they're going to teach a Bible study at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. They want us to come down in the afternoon so you can leave out of here at 12, get down there and still get back by 10 o'clock. Uh, that night, and we'll, uh, we're really going to try to build these teams. So the sign-up sheets are back there on that table. I'm going to take those teams today, and I'm going to reformulate them into my teams, and I'm going to meet with you guys Thursday night, and we're going to get the first teams up and ready to go and get that thing going as we work with everything else. But God bless you. Let's have a word of prayer, and we'll be dismissed. Father.